so what the hell are we doing with net energy billing? Like, why would a state do something like this? <laughs> well, uh, they the did. Stupidest it. thing I've ever seen. They just were hoodwinked, I think. You know. by, by whom? Solar lobby. Yeah. Is this on? Or are we, yeah, are we yeah, like live yeah. and recording? Yeah, no, that, that's where that's where I wanted to start. Is what, yeah, what, yeah. What the hell is wrong with with lawmakers that they would put a tax, a regressive tax, on everyone who has to buy electricity in the state of Maine and give it to out of state solar developers? Like, well, why? It, that does, doesn't make any sense. So I'm not actually convinced that they knew exactly what they were doing, and I think. Um, they were hoodwinked by the solar lobby who came in literally at the last second. I mean, the way that this shook out was in the utilities committee, uh, back in 2019. Um, and of course there was so much pent up demand on the left because LePage had blocked, blocked, blocked solar advancement, uh, in the state of Maine during his tenure because it was too expensive and he was a bottom line guy. What's this going to do? Mm-hmm. Raises rates. Okay. We're not doing it. And when the Democrats got their trifecta, it was like, uh, uh, you know, the, the dam let loose. Everything that right. had and renewable just, energy, right. green attached to it was, right. yeah, and that was, was golden. That was going to pass. But I mean, this, this has Republican fingerprints on it too. So that's the thing. If you look at what happened, there was, uh, the, the bill originally was sponsored by Dana Dow, uh, but what passed was not his original bill. So if you look at literally on the last day of committee, 2019, the solar lobby, uh, goes into the back room with the, you know, committee members, the proponents at the time. They come back out and then all of a sudden the bill jumped from like, it was like two megawatts up to five. It's tough for people who aren't familiar with how electricity works to comprehend the size of that. I mean, I, I guess for people who are listening, we're talking about the community solar program in the state of Maine, and it originally was for programs that are like 10 to 20 kilowatt out, kilowatts, which is rooftop solar. Rooftop solar. Five megawatts is somewhere between 15 and 20 football fields that's, worth that's of solar. Field. Yeah, that's a, that's that's a massive, field massive solar, solar panels. Solar panels. And when the way they paid for it was by effectively creating a tax. But it's not treated like a tax because it's collected by CMP and Versen in the form of higher rates. So everyone who signed up for community solar is basically saying to their neighbors, you're giving me a 15% discount on my electricity. Uh, and it, and it, it, in return, $220 million a year is going to flow out of state to solar developers. Yeah, mostly almost all of it's out of state. And uh, they're, they're um, not... The, 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 the money that's created in all of that is artificially done, right? If you were to go, if you were to take those same solar panels and use that, those projects to bid at the PUC on a competitive project, uh, call it, you know, a hundred megawatt solar farm, right? The PUC would require that that rate be competitive. They would send out an RFP. They would get bids. They'd go with the lowest bid that could do whatever amount that they were looking for. And ultimately, their job, the PUC's job, is to protect the the rate payers to the best extent that it can. So go find the best deal that you can. This program doesn't exist. It has The PUC has no oversight of this at all. So we've circumnavigated it. We've we've set the rates in statute, in law, with what they will be, and they just so happen to be indexed with the total cost of energy. So, so at the price, as the price of natural gas goes up, right? The price, the, the so amount when, of money the solar panel companies. When are the fossil fuel companies are making hay, these people are also profiting. And then they're saying at the same time, talking out of both sides of their mouth, well, we're really saving the environment here, but you know, they're it, really just doing it for the money. Yeah, I mean, if it wasn't done through the legislature, it kind of has the feel of a criminal enterprise. <laughs> that's, that's just exactly it. So we end up paying the long and short of it. What does that mean? Well, it means that for all of this solar, these small-scale solar projects, we're paying 
four or five times more than what those same solar panels would have cost if we went through a competitive bid process. We went down to the PUC here over in Hollowell and said, I want X amount of solar. Give me the best price. Instead, we're going to pay five times more than that just because. And so this, the solar companies, which are out of state, are getting, uh, the public advocate says $220 million a year by 2025. 20, uh, but in addition to that, they also get the renewable energy certificates, which they turn around and sell. Right. For, I mean, that's just made up funny money. Right. And they right. sell them wherever it's the government. Re- yeah, it's just a fake market, yeah. a fake market mm-hmm. that the government created. Uh, but the price for those is highest in usually in Massachusetts. So someone who subscribes to solar feels like they get that warm, fuzzy feeling that they're saving the environment. But the wreck ends up getting sold to a company in Massachusetts. So yeah. with this fictitious accounting system they've created, it's as if those solar panels were in Massachusetts. Yeah. yeah. Well, and and the, and the uh, electrons don't actually move that. <laughs> no, no. Like, I mean, it, it, it demonstrates like people don't actually understand anything about how electricity really works. Well, that's true. But and and uh, I think in in defense of the the common man or someone who just signs up for community solar and actually feels like they're saving the world, for some reason, energy markets in Maine, energy policy in Maine is wildly complicated. Like even. I mean, some of the lobbyists barely understand how the entire thing works, let alone lawmakers or regulators. Let alone the legislature. Yeah, it's it's just the I mean, well, that's legislators. That's clear. Have <laughs> no clue what this is, what this means. It doesn't mean that they don't care, right? It just means like you know, if you serve on the Health and Human Services Committee, you've got all kinds of stuff you got to worry about over there. It's it's supposed to be a part-time job. We certainly only pay you part-time. And yet you're expected to know all the ins and outs and, and have the same yep. understanding as what it takes engineers with years and years of education and experience to, to, to understand. I mean, it's a tough ask, but also it demonstrates the need, I think, for real reform there to take some of these decisions out of the legislative branch's purview. Give it to the professionals, the folks who we would task, like the PUC, to go and figure out. There's no reason. I mean, they have a full staff there. They are all uh, certified. You know, they've got the education that that, that is uh, professional and 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 the experience and the wherewithal and the bandwidth to dig in on these issues and deal with them well. It, the legislature doesn't have that, right? We're citizens. Well, I, I mean, as soon as you as soon as you do, you're termed out. Like as soon yeah, as uh, as soon as yeah, uh, yeah. you know, like Steve Foster from Dexter is great on energy policy, but he's going to be termed out as soon as he has a mastery of the subject. Uh, so I think you guys have been working on a bill to kind of basically get rid of this tax, a solar tax on people that props up these out-of-state firms. Uh, what is the status of that? I mean, I know Governor Mills' energy office has testified against a bill that would have done away with net energy billing, uh, but you guys announced on Tuesday you've kind of worked with uh, public advocate Bill Harwood and developed a, kind of a compromise proposal. So need to be clear about this, too, that what net energy billing teed up hasn't hit bills yet. That'll come in July. When it does, there's hundreds of megawatt, sorry, hundreds of dollars of uh, rating stranded costs, hundreds of millions of dollars, I should say, that will be added to bills starting in July. And folks may or may not care right now because, you know, hey, the weather's nice. People are going, you know, it's summer in Maine. What could, you know, be wrong? You know, I've I've totally checked out, you know. And all of a sudden, uh, they're going to get their bill and they're going to look at it and say, what the heck happened here and what is this increase? But at that point, the legislature will have adjourned for the year there's going to be at least six months of higher costs for main ratepayers, main people, main businesses. Basically, while you're trying to run your air conditioning this summer, you're going to be paying what two times, three times what most states pay. We are on track. Uh, by the end of the summer, we could be the highest kilowatt hour uh, rate in in the country here in Maine, which is great, higher great, even great job, guys. in Hawaii. <laughs> Who, who, Hawaii has been historically like the most expensive state in the country because it's an island. Yeah. A series of islands, right? They have totally different, and yet we're going to now be higher than Hawaii. 
is truly it's, remarkable. It is. If you wanted, if right. you if you were trying to make electricity prices as high as possible, this is this is a great way to do. Yeah, that. this is what you would do. Yeah. Um. So, is there any appetite from uh, people who don't have an R behind their name to do some kind of fix on this, or are we just too committed to the environmentalism? So the thing is, I think there's actually uh, an interest amongst particularly moderate Democrats to do something here, but it's complicated. And it's something that the way that the legislature works, which again is why the legislature shouldn't be doing this sort of thing anyway as it relates to energy policy, but uh, who do you listen to in this you know, environment is really important. And so the question's going to be, are you going to listen to your constituents who are about to pay, you know, almost $300 a year more in their electric bill, which is entirely preventable? Mm-hmm. Or are they going to listen to their friends in the solar lobby? Yeah. That's the choice that these folks are going to have to make. And so typically progressives don't like regressive tax systems. And then that's really what this is. So you're not. You're not taxing um, wealthy people more. Like the the guy who owns a summer home down on the coast of Maine, he's not he's not seeing a huge spike in his electricity bill. You know, it's 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 the poor poor people who are just trying to get by. It's so, we're taking money from them yeah. and giving it to developers from Massachusetts and Washington D.C. and Montana Texas. and California and Texas who don't have any connection to Maine. That's why I laugh when they call it community solar. Yeah. Um. So it is. Do you think that there, you guys will reach something in the next three weeks that mitigates the cost increases? You know, tonight will be a really good indication of whether that's going to be possible or not. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, I think everybody's going to have to just make a choice. And, you know, the, 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 the there's no reason that we shouldn't make this fix but for the solar lobby. Well, I mean, also, also the environmental thing, like the, you know, the entire driving force behind this was to reduce Maine's carbon emissions. I mean, if you, if you take into account Maine's forests, Maine is already uh, net negative in terms of carbon emissions. But yeah, so. I haven't been able to find anybody who tells, who can tell me the emissions reduction for community solar. I asked the Public Utilities Commission. I asked the Office of Public Advocate. I asked the Governor's Energy Office. I asked the Department of Environmental Protection. I asked the Maine Renewable Energy Association. And none of them can tell me how much we've decreased uh, or how much we planned to see right. a, a decrease in what our carbon emissions. Is. That would be if if 100% of these projects were to you know come online here and, and function ideally, right. you know, because right. Maine already isn't a great place to do solar <laughs> in, right. in the in the first place. Right. Um, but it seems like the the momentum is towards expanding this kind of thinking with wind power. You know, it's like it, we, we've created a solar tax on ratepayers to prop up the solar industry, and now we're going to do something similar with this offshore wind program. Yeah, it, 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 it it's not going to end. I, I, you know, here's a bad statistic for you, that there's more solar projects in the queue than there is energy that we actually consume yeah. in the state. And no, li- no limit exactly. to the amount of uh, right. no limit to the amount of subsidy, no right? No guardrails there. At all in yeah. terms of size, in terms of subsidy, it's just it's the wild west. Right? And they don't even know uh, like which companies, which entities are profiting the most from that. Only well, versus only versus central main power. They, but and that's a part of what the Republicans are proposing is that with this this uh, bill here that's coming up later today is to send these projects to the PUC. We're not even saying, and the Republicans have compromised a lot. We just wanted to do away with this program altogether. Mm-hmm. We think it's silly. It's it's not cost effective. It's harmful to ratepayers, and frankly, we don't need it. But we've compromised and put forward a proposal in partnership with a public advocate that would send these projects to the PUC for review. PUC would open up their books just like they would on any other competitively bid project, and figure out what a reasonable rate of return really is and still provide a profit, right? So we're not even saying we're going to do away with these, these projects altogether. We're not even saying that, you know, we're going to completely screw them over. We're saying, can we just do a reasonable rate of return rather than, you know, five times what the competitive 
competitive rate would be if they went out on the market. So, um, I think when it comes, when it comes to, to, to wind, we're going to run into the same sort of buzzsaw here. And the, the question is, is, you know, always should be, how much is this going to cost? You know, and how, and who's, and who's going to benefit? Right. Uh, you know, I know one of the, one of the key sticking points right now when they're talking about building this huge port facility is uh, a labor peace agreement or a project labor agreement. Right. And Maine's largest construction companies like Chimbro and Sargent, uh, Reed and Reed, they, they're, uh, some of them are employee owned. They don't have a union. So if they force the contract to go to only unionize employees, we're basically going to build this thing for labor state. unions in Massachusetts. Right. We're going right. to bring in a, t- a ton of construction workers from Worcester. Solidarity. <laughs> right. So one. Well, I mean, it's, it's, right. I mean, understanding that dynamic, you, yeah. you can, uh, see how the Senate Majority Leader Troy Jackson supports it because he's a big union guy. Um, but even with this wind power project, I asked the same question. Well, how do we know that this is going to be good for the environment? There seems to be just this, um, uh, assumption that because you're getting power from the wind or from the sun, it's good for the environment. And what does that really mean, right? Good for the environment. Who who decides what's good for the environment? You can go down to New Jersey and they're killing whales left and right. <laughs> but is that good for the environment? It's completely ruining their ecosystem. But is that good for the environment? What what does that even mean, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's at the end of the day, what's your what's your objective? You know, what are they actually trying to, is it, is it, is, is a, is a reduction somewhere else in some type of other generation? Is that offset worth the cost for everything else? Disruptions to the lobster industry, killing more whales, you know, all, all these other problems that you're going to have higher rates. Yeah. <laughs> which are going to force people to then make other less economical decisions. Oh, by the way, with higher rates, you get less EVs, which means more gas-powered vehicles. And yet we know that the biggest emitter of uh, uh, greenhouse, gas, greenhouse gas emissions in Maine comes from our transportation sector, and yet we're going to increase the cost of electricity in Maine to make it less enticing to go to electric vehicles and therefore increase or not decrease are greenhouse gas emissions from transportation. I mean, so what's really good for the environment? Oh, well, who, nu- who nuclear power. That? Right. <laughs> nuclear power would be great. That would but, be great. Yeah. I mean, the, the same people who are right now telling us we need uh, community solar and offshore wind shut down Maine Yankee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Well, it, it was too competitive so that it made it harder for, uh, you know, a, a wind developer to go to the PUC and say that we're, we're the best deal in town for ratepayers. Yeah. And I think with the, with the wind turbines, there's also the question, I guess this applies to solar too, of remediation once the project's no longer good. Because, uh, a wind turbine has a finite lifespan. So who's going to be it there to pick up the pieces when a wind turbine's crumbling into the Gulf of Maine or on a mountaintop in Bingham? Like the, the, yeah. the guy with the guy in a suit down in Boston who works at First Wind, is he coming up here to clean right. that up? All right. Those same, those same folks. I mean, there, there's, there's not really a lot of thought to the long term. And I think so much of it was, you know, like I said, pent up demand and, and the deluge just kind of came down, uh, when the, the balance of power shifted, but there was never, and that's my, probably my biggest criticism of Democrats these days is there's no long term planning, right? There's no thought process in what you're really doing. You know, it's short term, it's emotional arguments, but the, when it comes down to brass tacks and, and what, is actually going to be beneficial in the long run. No regard for that, right? That that's too inconvenient for the narrative. They need to do something now, right? And, and well, we get a change package. Yeah, yeah. You want to talk about budget? <laughs> no. no. Uh, actually, I want to talk about the uh, the tribal sovereignty thing. Oh man. Uh, you know, I, I think it's an interesting one because basically uh, every single big decision in this building has. You know, the decisions haven't been made on the floor of the House or the floor of the Senate or in committee rooms, really. No one's changing their minds. Everything is baked in, uh, except on this tribal sovereignty issue, which kind of seems to be dividing the Democrats. Uh, Governor Mills has this 
like very bizarre uh, antipathy for the tribes, you know, blowing off the state of the tribe ceremony. Yeah, I didn't understand that. It's a, she just she. It's clear that there's some kind of personal yeah. grudge or grievance. So it's fascinating to me. And obviously, with uh, you know, you have you're working with a Democratic Party that's kind of been taken over by diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, so on the surface of things, if you didn't know the people involved, you would say this is a no-brainer. The a legislature completely controlled by Democrats is going to come in here and give the indigenous peoples, whatever they want, but it's not working that way. Uh, you know, they can't even get a meeting with the governor. Uh, and so I know uh, the speaker, uh, Rachel Talbert Ross, has been trying to do some wrangling, uh, trying to get some Republicans on board to support that. I know that went south uh, thanks to the majority budget. Um, a lot of Republicans lost their appetite to help out the speaker and do something uh, bipartisan compromise. Um, but you're still seeing, I think she's pushing, she still thinks she can make something happen for the tribes. Um, what's going on with that? Well, you know, when it, when it comes to this stuff, uh, the question that I think we all ought to be asking ourselves here, uh, is what exactly is it? What thing do the tribes want to do? that they can't do right now. And whenever you ask that question, my experience has been that I never get a real answer, right? I, because because the, the real answer, I think, is not actually positive to their narrative. So what I think the end game is, is, is to be... Um, able to, to, to do things that are not necessarily stated right now. And what do I mean by that? Well, I think casinos is a big one. Uh, I'm not a proponent of expansion of, of casinos. I think we've got a couple in Maine. And I think, frankly, when you look at, uh, you know, when you walk around, uh, you know, Hollywood slots down in Bangor, I mean, you got to step over needles and, and you see people. You know, and grandmothers in there blowing their social security oh, check man, on the penny it's, slots. It's, it's, it's a place for all kinds of social ills. And, and I don't think, um, I don't think there's a lot of positive to that other than the money. Yeah. I mean, they are, the tribes already have effectively the biggest casino in the state, right? With the sports gambling. If they, if they, if they ever, yeah, if they get their act together on that, right? Uh, they should partner test. with my old, my old employer, Barstool Sports, and they, <laughs> they can get that right. done for very soon. But yeah. You know, you would think that there'd be an opportunity for the tribes to become like economic free zones, like a, a Hong Kong or Singapore of Maine. But it does seem that there's a, a playbook that is kind of predictable uh, when it comes to economic development in tribal areas. Yeah. Um, do you think is there something other than well, and the, other the than argument casinos where they're pushing economic development too is 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 not made in good faith by the tribes. If you look at any of the statistics and any of the data that they you know, use as a justification for why they need to do this, that, or the other thing. Conveniently, they always look at the the the, the data that they use uh, is only looked at years after the original deal was made in Maine. And so you're talking about the the 1980 Maine settlement. Native, yeah, yeah, right. And so, so when that deal was made, there was a massive injection of money into the tribes. There'd be like 300 million in today's money, right? Or more? Yeah, you know, that, somebody ought to do that calculation and, and I think it was like 80, down. I think it was 80 million. Yeah, so, back in, so what in, would that in be today. in today's dollars? Yeah. Substantially more is the yeah. answer, right? And so they want to reopen that whole deal because allegedly it was made in bad faith. I, I disagree fundamentally with with that assertion, first of all, too, because I, I actually we had folks in our caucus who were parties of that deal. Uh, there's a nice actually, uh, Tim Woodcock uh, came into our caucus and, and he was doing some work on the federal side at the time because, of course, the feds had to um, more or less certify the agreement on the federal level. Whatever the state came up with, their tribes, the feds would, you know, uh, uh, take into to federal statute and codify that right so and he was on the federal side doing that that work down in dc and and there's a there's a photo that they've they've got um shoot i can't remember the other gentleman's name that came in with them we'll get that to you all right so anyway they showed this photo uh of all of the stakeholders and the parties at the time that they had finally reached their deal 
it's a great deal. Everybody's very happy. They're all smiling in the photo. You know, it's it's all good, right? And now, 40 years later, well, we don't want to give the money back, but we want to renegotiate it, yeah. right? So, you know, look, if you want to redo the deal, okay, fine, let's start from scratch. First things first, give the state back the money that you accepted, and we'll go back to zero, you know, that, that all tribal land is, is going to be treated the exact same as any other piece of property in the state of Maine. We're going to start there, right, and we'll renegotiate everything. Or we're not going to reopen the deal. Why would you do that? I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me. And it's not made in bad faith. That's, that's false. You know, ask the people that were there. They'll tell you otherwise. They didn't have to make that deal, by the way. In fact, many other states didn't make a deal until years later. And that's when they start to look at the data of economic, you know, growth. And yes, of course, following, you know, if you were to compare tribes in Maine who got an injection of cash, and then years later, what that economic growth was, that's going to miss all that activity that happened in those immediate years mm-hmm. that doesn't get captured into this narrative. That, you know, we're so far behind in Maine and, you know, our tribes are, are lagging behind national averages, but only because they're looking at the wrong years. Yeah. And I've actually been to reservations within the last year in, in New Mexico and Arizona and uh, they're not doing well anywhere. <laughs> the, the idea that uh, tribes outside of Maine are in some way flourishing or economically successful it th- doesn't really pan out in, right. in my experience, just having seen it, but not, not really uh, thoroughly studied it. But uh, are your members, uh, is, the, is the Senate going to be uh, cooperative in a potential veto override Senate Republicans, or do most of your members think like you do on this? Um, I, I think my members want to get to the truth, right? And, and, and to, Stop with the, you know, the, these, these kind of emotional, you know, knee jerk things and just really look at, okay, what happened? Uh, was it fair? Uh, is there something that is being missed here, right? And, in, in this whole, this whole argument, I, I just don't see, um, what it is that they're hanging their hat on. Again, what do you want to do? That you can't do right now under either federal or state law. Give me that straight answer. What do you want to do? And you think that's casinos, basically? I think it's casinos. I think it's probably, uh, you know, being able to avoid some other laws that we think are important as a society that need to be followed in terms of environment, in terms of wildlife protection, in terms of uh, property rights, uh, in terms of criminal law. There's all kinds of things that I think are important and that if you look around the country, there's a precedent set, you know, that you can't, even though you are, you know, recognized as an independent and a, and a you know, quote unquote, sovereign uh, people, property, there are still limits on that because we still have to live under the rule of law. And though some might be different here and there, there are still minimum standards that have to be followed. And I think that what they want to do is throw them out. And I think that's particularly true in regard to environment, uh, in terms of regulations, you know, and, and, and what that, what exactly that looks like is hard to put a finger on because they won't tell you what exactly is it do you want to do that you can't do right now. You know, they'll say, well, it's about fishing and hunting. Really? Because you already have exemptions. There are already precedents in statute that allow for you to, you know, have different rights than other people in the state of Maine. So what is it that you want to do? Do you, uh, do you think that the speaker is going to be successful trying to override a veto on this one though? Um, we'll see what it looks like. Uh, I don't know what the final agreement is going to look like. She printed a six page concept draft. You know, the day, There's a lot of that going around. You know, the week after uh, we were supposed to be done in committee. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I don't think anything's going to happen this year on it. That's not the sense that I get, but, um, I don't know. I mean, you know, I think, I think folks need to just be brutally honest with themselves down here and, and ask themselves those tough questions of, you know, if you start there, right, and you don't feel they should know what they're voting on. 
First and foremost. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, I think there's been a big push by the media around tribal sovereignty as well. Like the Portland Press Herald has done, uh, you know, a million stories about this. So they've got, uh, certainly the, the, the tribes have a friend in the media because they're kind of following this, um, you know, modern progressive thinking, uh, like, you know, you got to put a, a land claim statement on your homepage and, uh, you know, acknowledge that your business is <laughs> is on yeah. stolen Wabnaki land. You're not going to give it back. You're just going to let right. everybody know that you're you're on stolen land. Right. Um, but, yeah, that, that, that'll be an interesting one to see. Uh, one that was a little bit more predictable this session was the uh, apparent Bill of Rights and all the educational transparency stuff. I don't know if you were surprised to see that go down in flames as quickly as it did, but... You know, we did some polling at the main wire and and found that this stuff has broad bipartisan support. Yeah. Like, you know, 60, 70 percent of Democrats are support putting curriculum online. Um, they support basic transparency. They support schools teaching basics, reading, writing, arithmetic. Um, but the legislature just would not entertain any of these transparency proposals. Um, what is uh, what have your conversations been like around those basic education reforms? My caucus is obviously uh, strong supporters of rental rights, um, and I think we're all really concerned when we look at what's been happening in Maine. I think um, COVID really exacerbated um, a lot of those challenges, but it also gave some parents in Maine a window into what exactly is happening in public education. Now, the, the thing is, right, there's a lot of really great teachers out there, right? A lot of really great educators that we're fortunate to have. Um, and then we have these bad apples that end up um, getting so much attention. Uh, in the They're the ones that become superintendents. And they, well, <laughs> and and unfortunately, right? When that happens it's problematic for the entire profession. It doesn't have to be because if there was a proper response when that happens, it would make it so much easier for the good teachers to keep on teaching and doing what they love and what they're good at. And by proper response, you mean firing? You get rid of it. Yeah. I mean, why would you, why would you allow, you know, some of the things that have been happening are just pretty outrageous. I mean, it doesn't, you know, years ago we wouldn't have even, been having those conversations yeah. about you know uh what do you do well you get rid of them i mean well, i think part of the problem <laughs> is that a, a a bad teacher and a good teacher pay the same union dues and that's the issue is that uh it, it really highlights the the strength of the union in in protecting the worst in the protect in the profession it's kind of their essential function. <laughs> the it, main, main education right? association I don't, I don't exists to protect I, bad teachers. Yeah, if you're a good teacher, why the heck would you want to be associated with the bad teachers? Well, I, I do understand that sometimes, you know, if you're if you are a good teacher and there's an allegation from a problematic student, you know, there are sure. situations where you need a, a legal defense or, or parents. I mean, you know, parents aren't entirely blameless in this conversation, sure. but it does seem like the the union. Uh, it doesn't do itself any favors by having a, a policy of just blanket protection for teachers. I mean, I, I heard a story just the other day that was like something that could have happened out of New York where it cost a school district more than $30,000 to uh, get rid of a teacher who slapped a four-year-old. Right. <laughs> you right. Know? It's, so why are we going to defend yeah. that? Right. I mean, that's, that's the problem with there's look there's a role to play i think of unions i'm not you know i was in a union once right i was in a firefighters union and i was in it because there was a benefit to it right like that that you know life insurance was the big thing right mm-hmm. if you get hurt on the job or you get or you die right there's there's a benefit it's competitive it's it's a nice one great but what i've found more often than not is that there's a lot of other caveats to it that, that make it much more problematic for the folks that are good at the job that you know 80 90 plus percent of those folks who are good at their job but they're coerced into doing into joining because if they don't they won't get hired in the first place mm-hmm. and it's funny too because you know politically they're also told how to vote 
And that's not right or fair to them. I uh, sometimes using uh, public government resources, right? Their government email accounts. I mean, we just saw uh, unions spend was, all kinds of money against me, and yeah. yet the local teachers are not necessarily opposed to me, and yet that's where their dues are going. Mm-hmm. It's funny too because there's been times when I was on the education committee and I'd put forward bills that would help rural teachers. And the main education association would come in and spike it. And yet you'd go back home and you'd tell the folks back home what's happening. And they're like, well, how come I'm paying somebody to actively work against my best interest? And I don't have a choice. I mean, that's the dynamic that we're, we're talking about. And, you know, I, I understand that the, you know, the union has to, you know, they're, they're going to do what they're going to do, but, on the, their opposition to the transparency stuff and some of the some of the signals you're seeing around um, uh, basically doing away with Freedom of Access Act requests. Obviously, you know we we use uh, FOA quite often in order to get public records that the government, in some instances, doesn't want public. Um, so it's a I think it's a critical tool for knowing what the government is doing. Um, but you can see the gears turning. They're trying to lay the political foundation for reining in FOA because they say. Um, you know, it's wasting teachers' time or superintendents' time, and these are politically contrived attacks on schools. Like, if you want to know, um, you know, how a school is spending money or if they're, you know, using left-wing ideas about race or gender to indoctrinate elementary school right. kids, right. Uh, I think that's something that uh, the public deserves to know and not an abuse of right. the Freedom of Access Act. And I think if you guys were able to put um, well, and that information publicly just – if the schools just put the information publicly, then right. you're not dealing with the FOA. So they, right. they, they're trying to rein in FOA, and they also don't want it just like made right. public as a matter of course. Right. If you just had a little bit more transparency, you wouldn't be dealing right. with so many requests. Right. Or, here's a profound thought, just don't do it. Well, that, that, that too. Don't, just don't engage in that kind of behavior, and you won't have to worry about how expensive it's going to be to try to cover it up and hide it from the public. Which is what the argument is, right? It's going to cost all kinds of money to work through this FOA. Well, why? Is this, are you saying then that there is something there that you, you're going to have to produce if a parent requests, you know, all the ways that you're, you know, teaching pansexualism and omnisexualism right, to uh, third graders? So, yeah, you know what? If you are, turns out that probably is going to be an issue and you probably are going to have to hire a lawyer or two because there are going to be parents that are going to be ticked off about that because it's inappropriate. You know, if you're if you're teaching this stuff to, you know, fourth graders, First off, what the heck is wrong with you, <laughs> right? Well, it's happening. But, it's happening in every school district in Maine. Yeah, I, I really. Mean, it, it's, I mean, it's it's uh, it, it gets down to just a disagreement about reality, um, yeah. and in some ways, it's become a, a religious view on the left. This uh, this uh, their ideas about gender and sexuality. I wonder. You're. I mean, you're a lawyer. <laughs> is there is there a uh, uh, an establishment clause violation going here when a uh, a school is teaching this left wing orthodoxy? Uh, about the the nature of the soul and the spirit. Man, that's a it's a really good constitutional law question. <laughs> it, is. it is. They don't call the, themselves the legal a, answer is it depends. But, yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, it, it, you know, they don't call themselves a religion, but it has uh, left left wing progressivism has all the trappings of one. So I think the biggest the biggest disappointment for me in all this is at what point are these conversations appropriate, right? Is it appropriate to have a conversation about gender or sex or transgenderism or whatever, all these different names for all these different things with somebody that's in elementary school, a kid that's in elementary school, they shouldn't be learning about sex at all in elementary school. That's the reality of it. And yet we're going to have vigorous debates around that in the legislature. And I guess, you know, again, I, I think back to my time in high school, you know, or even in, 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 in the, just the public school system, a product of public education, you know. You're a survivor. I had a great experience. I, I, right? I, I, I mean, survived I public education. We had a great school district. Uh, we didn't do any of this stuff. You know, you got, you know, you got to watch a video when I think you were in fifth grade about how the, yeah, the health, their health teachers putting a condom on a banana or something. It wasn't <laughs> even that, right? I mean, that was, you know, well into middle school at that point. But like, 
you know, we, we've changed so much to all of a sudden you need to indoctrinate, you know, eight year olds. About genders that were invented, genders that were invented two or three years ago. Why is that a thing? Right? And, 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 and we're certainly not going to include the parents in that conversation or even tell them what the heck is happening. I mean, none of that should pass anybody's straight face test. It just, it shouldn't sit right with anybody because it's wrong. That's, that's wrong. And, and we shouldn't be having conversations with them about any type of, you know, sexual activity at, at eight years old. If you are, there's probably something wrong with you. And it, by the way, if you did that in any other setting outside of school, there would probably be a conversation you need to have with the local police department. Yeah. That's I mean, the reality of it. And, and the same goes for, uh, some of these books that they're very animated, very excited about keeping in front of young children. Like the one in particular that gets a lot of attention, gender queer, it, it literally has cartoon images of children performing sex acts. And they're, they're standing up for this book like this is the free speech debate of the century. That this book needs to be in front of, uh, you know, elementary school kids and middle school kids. The, the, the folks that want to defend that, if they want to, you know, again, right, once you're, you know, you're, if, if you're coming of age and you're, you know, in your, your teenage years and you're at that point in life where you're one, we're talking about giving porn to eight year olds and trying to justify that. Like it's some kind of moral. Like this is an imperative that we must show these young children all this stuff. You know, if, if you were to, uh, for the same reason that you shouldn't give an eight year old a playboy, they shouldn't get this either if we want them to, 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 to not have a messed up, you know, brain. Yeah. And be exposed. Yeah. There's, there's harm that's associated with that, right? I mean, and again, if, if it was a, just a person on the street that walked up to an eight year old and gave him a playboy, that would be illegal. Yeah. Right? That, that would fit under the obscenities law. Right. But our schools have an exemption. And, and an exemption, and yeah, by the way, that was, exemption. the exemption was crafted because we were, we thought that it was going to apply to like classical art. Like there, you know, there might be a little bit of areola in a painting or something, but, uh, they've, they've really, it seems, taken some liberties with, As with Supreme Power or the exemption. Uh, you know it when you see it. Correct. <laughs> and let me tell you, if anybody is trying to defend that particular book, and hasn't seen it. Yes, there's a lot That's of that. There's a lot of that going around. It's a lot of it, it's book banning yeah. because they heard on MSNBC that oh, this is just you know this or main public broadcast or or any of the liberal yeah organizations locally here in Maine that this is book banning and oh my goodness this is going back you know this is McCarthyism and blah blah blah. How about you just go read it? How about you go look at exactly the thing that you're espousing to defend? Before you do it, mm-hmm. read the book, and then we'll talk. And, and I, I love how they uh, even invoke the idea of book banning. Like there's a bookstore in Topsom that I go to that has a table where they're selling banned books. That's what they, they've put a sign up and there's banned books. Sure. It's like, okay, but, but you're selling them. You know, if I try to so buy this, obviously it's cost me. Yeah, exactly. But there's it's, someone just, just down the street, someone will go to a school board meeting and make the, you know, the Nazi comparisons and, and talk about book banning. It just seems like there's a remarkable disconnect. Right. I've said that what, what the Republicans should do is have these books translated into French and Lingala and hand them out <laughs> at the shelters in Portland. <laughs> you, you might see a, a political coalition develop right. to put right. some standards in the schools. I mean, they've right. even they even shot down bills this session just to put uh, age appropriate guardrails yeah. on some of these books. Yeah, I mean that's the that's the thing, right? So what I was saying earlier is, can we can we just agree that there's a certain age at which you're you shouldn't be exposed to some of this stuff, whether it's straight or gay or or whatever, just adult. Just, just explicit adult. adult. Right. Yeah. This is, you know, we, we, we have ratings on things like movies and TV shows. You know, even in fact, if they were to try to, I, I would wager if they were to try to uh, access some of this material through uh, their school issued laptop on the school issued internet server, it would probably be blocked. Yeah, it might have, might set off some alarm bells. But then again, there are some Department of Education approved uh, websites like the Trevor Project um, where this kind of material is easily accessible. 
Um, I guess what do you what do you see for for parents? There's a tremendous amount of energy around some of these issues. Parents are turning out to school board meetings, whether it's these books or um, transparency issues. Uh, you know, in Oxford Hills, two school board members were recalled for uh, passing a, a gender identity policy. Um, what do you see as the avenue for these parents? Because a lot of them are wondering, should they do a ballot initiative? Should they run for school board? Um, what exactly is the political path forward for people who think like you do uh, when it comes to some of these issues in the public education system? Yeah, well, and I mean, like, to be clear about how I think, I mean, I look, I don't have kids in the public education system. I'm 29. I don't, I don't really have kids at all, right? Uh, but... I would like to think that at the point at which I do have kids and I do have a family that I can trust that when they go to school, they're going to get age appropriate material. That nothing's going to be hidden from me as a parent. That's what I think. And so if you're a parent and you feel like you're not getting age appropriate, your kid is not getting age appropriate material and they are hiding things from you, then you should be upset and you should be trying to engage in, in some capacity and you certainly shouldn't be labeled a domestic terrorist. Which is, <laughs> yeah, Mary you know, Garland. <laughs> I mean, come on. You know, the, the reality is the left is way overreached here. They always do. You know, it, it's never enough. There's this this swing that happens and thankfully, when that inevitably does happen, they get power it, it goes to their head and they way overreach, there's usually a correction. And so I hope that these folks are are going to be a part of that correction. And by that, I mean politically, that you need to take the power away from them because otherwise you can expect more of the same. It's just like under this building, right? Or under, under the, 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 the dome here in, in this building, that inevitably they go too far and there needs to be a correction and people need to be aware of what's happening. And ultimately when they find out what's happening, they get frustrated and they vote accordingly. Um, I think frankly, there's been a lack of codifying amongst the, the right of center folks. And I, and I don't know what this is attributable to. Maybe it's the, the Trump effect. <laughs> You know, that has turned a lot of folks off to Republicans or conservatives because of that. But they still agree with us on the ideas. Yeah. Right. And, and so it's, it's, it's about how do you codify that into meaningful action and, and not get sidetracked by these other things that, that don't matter for you and your family's life and focus on the things that really do. Well, I, I think speaking of a correction, uh, a lot of conservatives expected that to happen last fall. Um, you know, the, the red wave didn't materialize, uh, and that was uh, abundantly clear in Maine. I mean, the, the turnout, um, the, the way that Janet Mills cruised to victory, I think surprised some people. Um, and I think that there are Republicans in the state who are wondering, uh, if anything is going to change the next time around. Um, I know you've, you're, Probably the most successful Republican fundraiser at this point, just judging by main campaign finance records. Um, do you see do you see things happening in terms of um, the conservative political machinery uh, pointing in a direction that's going to help that correction? I mean, I've I've never I've never uh, you know I don't work on campaigns or anything, but I'd imagine you might turn out to school board meetings when there's a hundred angry parents demanding transparency and I don't know get their email addresses or something. Yeah, it, I think there's been a, um, an awakening that I've seen, uh, amongst conservatives. I, I, I look to, uh, the, you know, the abortion, the late term abortion bill yeah. that was proposed and the 1600 or so folks that came to testify. Yeah, we should, we can definitely talk about that because that's, and they're kind of, they're kind of playing, uh, hide the ball, right? With the next work session because they don't want, you know, another 1,600 angry pro-lifers. I shouldn't say angry because it was a very peaceful demonstration, but they, they don't want to recreate that spectacle. But. Yeah, it's it's funny. I didn't hear of any incidents where, uh, you know, I think they may have, you know, prayed a little too loud in the building <laughs> for some folks. But, you know, I've walked by, you know, union folks in here that scream in my face about, 
you know, I have to vote for this, that, or the other thing, or, you know, uh, things get tense. I mean, really tense. Uh, this was not that. You know, the folks that were here were here to really just, you know, try to ask their elected officials to please do the right thing and, and not, you know, become the most uh, extreme state in the country with the passage of this bill. Anyway, um, I, I looked to that example, and I just hope that folks realize with Republican majorities, they don't have to worry about things like that. Right, this extreme About stuff. Eight, eight and a half month and, old babies getting right. uh, killed by advanced registered nurses. Right, a, a baby that book. could otherwise be delivered. Yeah, and is, instead it's going to be aborted. I mean, we've just crossed so many thresholds. First, it was public funding. Your tax dollars are going to abortion. That was a line in the sand that was never crossed prior to this extreme takeover of the, the far left progressives here in Maine, and they did that. And now it's, and you know, now it's on to another thing, right? It's never enough. They always overreach. They always overreach. You know, I think voters were sold the bale of goods when, uh, they, they were promising on the campaign trail that they were going to, you know, protect a woman's right to choose. You know, we're not going to let Republicans take away our right to abortion. Well, I don't think people in Maine took that as, so therefore we're going to allow late-term abortion. Well, I mean, Governor Mills said specifically on several occasions that she would pursue no changes exactly. in abortion law. And Why she would the voters and it, think that it wasn't just like an offhand remark. It was a, a practiced comment. She said, I will pursue no changes. She was asked, you're going to keep the viability threshold. She said she was going to keep the viability threshold. And like two months afterwards, she flips completely from no changes to the most extreme abortion policy. Uh, the media has totally left her alone on this. Uh, because I think there's only two real possibilities. Either she hasn't thought seriously about the issue in her previous legal career and all of a sudden had an epiphany in those two months, or she lied during the campaign. Uh, she knew what she was going to do if she won and if she had majorities, and she lied deliberately. Uh, which option do you think it is? So I think back to the campaign between her and Paula Page, and they had basically the same policy on abortion i think she she articulated hers a little bit better we're not touching it right yeah like we're just going to leave it the same what it is today is what it's going to be tomorrow that's it and yet planned parenthood spent millions in maine Mm -hmm. to make sure that she was successful and that she kept her democrat majorities in the legislature which begs the question if there was going to be no change why the heck would they care about the outcome I think from the get-go, there was a promise made, and as evident by the bill that was printed and came out with basically every Democrat legislator in Maine signing on as a co-sponsor to the governor's bill, it exemplifies that that was not true. That from the beginning, there was always going to be this promise of if you protect us from this red wave, which, you know, as you pointed out, never really materialized down in Florida, I guess it came, but not anywhere else across the country. But if you, if you support us, if you protect us, there'll be something there in exchange for that. I can't imagine why Planned Parenthood would spend as much money as they did in Maine, but for that reason Mm -hmm. to do nothing really. Why wouldn't they put that money into New Hampshire right, or put it some other place where they could, you know, uh, move the needle on something that they cared about. It wasn't for nothing. Is yeah. the answer. So, so I guess if you if you establish that there was a deliberate deception by the governor on this issue, uh, how how can you negotiate on other other things with her? Like, you know, I don't know how how often you get to meet with her and uh, whether she's really interested in what the minority has to say. But um, how do how do you uh, you know, do the, the sausage making of politics with someone who took the, the biggest issue of the campaign and engaged in this elaborate deception. It's tough. Uh, and I think back to the uh, majority budget that they passed. You know, it started off with, you know, the governor saying, I want a two thirds budget. And then they pulled the rug out from under us and they wouldn't give us a thing, anything at all. And it, hey, you know what? That's their prerogative. 
They don't have to, but don't lie and say that we're going to include you in something mm-hmm. or we, we care about bipartisanship or we care about the voice of the minority when the opposite is how they behave. So it's, you know, I, I've yet to see anything that indicates, you know, that there is going to be a good faith negotiation done here. Uh, and that if Republicans do capitulate on something that we're going to get something in return for that, um, you know, we'll see how the next three weeks go, but it, it's not looking like there's going to be, uh, really any sort of desire on the part of the majority to work with us. And we've been clear from the beginning that we will engage in a meaningful negotiation if that's what it is. But if you're just interested in, you know, playing some game for the sake of PR and the public and, and looking like you're some type of, you know, uh, real deal maker and a bipartisan player. That's, that's not something that we're going to go along with just to make them look good. And, you know, for our side to, to be completely hamstrung and, and have the rug pulled out from us under us again. Um, that's not, that's not worth our time. That's not fair to our folks. And, uh, I'm not going to ask our folks to do it, frankly. Uh, on national politics, you have a favorite in the uh, Republican presidential primary right now. And also, are you uh, so joining Senator Susan Collins and Angus King in supporting Nirav Shah's bid to become the CDC director? <laughs> uh, the last one was a joke. <laughs> yeah. <that's, laughs> oh, man. Um, it, in terms of president, you know, uh, frankly, I, I just don't want somebody who's over 80. Right. <laughs> it's like, why is that where we're at? You would you think, know? I mean, the, the Constitution established minimum age limits. Right. You think we could do, do some maximum like, age limits, cl- too. Clearly, age mattered, right, in some respects. Uh, well, and, of course, nobody was living to exactly. 80. Exactly. <laughs> they, 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 they didn't have to 25 was that. old, you yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I just don't think... You know, I, I, I appreciated, uh, the policy that Donald Trump put forward. Um, I, I, like most people, got kind of sick of the rhetoric and it's a lot of baggage. It, it, it yeah. is. And unnecessarily was, so. He had really some good really stuff. good wins. Yeah. He had some really good wins. Peace was breaking out in the Middle East. It's unbelievable, <laughs> right? Like some of the things that he was able to do that nobody ever thought would, would happen. Uh, by far the most pro-life president. We've, and, we've ever had. Yeah. And, 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 uh, and the economy, I mean, you don't even have to talk really about the economy. I mean, it was, it was, you know, but for COVID, it would have been. You know, yeah. But for the government response to COVID. Well, right. Which right. Trump and, was a part and of. The, and the Chinese development yeah. of COVID. Yeah. I mean, Trump, and, yeah. Trump, Trump was, uh, responsible for making Anthony Fauci into a household name. And, and that I think is a good, um, you know, I, 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 I get frustrated when Republicans, and I get that this is a part of the primary process, and we're going to go ahead and go down this path. But we're going to kill ourselves. We're going to we're going <laughs> to we're going to fight with each other for a while, and it, it's frustrating to me to see you know Trump and and DeSantis, uh, you know, fighting over. I do think that um, DeSantis's management of Florida and and against, frankly, some of the advice of Trump and and some of the national advice that is being given. Um, is a good differentiator between the two. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's unfortunate that this is the, where things are going to go. At the same time, I, I am quite bullish on whoever the Republican nominee is to, to be successful against the Biden administration. I mean, if, if he's going to stay this path and all signs indicate that he is, Biden's not doing really any campaigning again. I think he got away with it at one point in time, but it's not going to happen twice. There's going to be, um, even if Trump is the nominee, I still would take Trump in that race. Uh, I think, um, when you look at how tight, and of course the presidential, uh, races <laughs> really come down to a few states, right? Mm-hmm. And how tight those margins were there, I don't think you're. And you know, Maine's one of them. But, uh, because of the way we can split our electoral college votes, you yep. know, the second district is definitely in play. Yep. Uh, you know, that's why uh, Trump came to Bangor. He's one of the few Republican candidates who's actually, uh, you know, made it a priority. Yeah. Yeah. 
No, I look, I, I, I appreciate everything that he did with the time that he had. I think it's time for somebody else. Uh, and you know, I, I, I hope that, uh, it's somebody that's not 80 years old as the next president of the United States. Uh, yeah. I'll leave a, it at that. <laughs> that's a, that's a modest request. Well, I think we can leave it there. Uh, thank you very much, Trey, for, uh, doing the main wire podcast with us. Happy to. Thanks for having me, Steve. Awesome.